When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. Now when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. As these men were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? See, those who wear soft clothes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence, and the violent have been seizing it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Let anyone who has hear his ears listen. To what should I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children, we played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Erica. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, I like that. Good morning. Good morning. Um, my name's Eric. If I haven't met you, I'm also one of the pastors here uh, at Trinity, so it's good to be with all of you this morning. Um, just a few things before we move into the message on um, just a few adjustments and reminders on page 7 in the bulletin. Uh, just a note, Second Peter class is postponed until a later time. And then men notice that the men's summer book study that's happening um, this upcoming Saturday. So just wanted to point that out. Well, we are in a series on the Gospel of Matthew. We're looking at chapters 8 through 12. These chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, which tells the story of Jesus, they're all about Jesus. Who is he? Who is this person, Jesus? They're all about his mission. What did he come to do? And... They're about discipleship. What does it mean to follow this person, Jesus? Why would somebody become a follower of his? That's why we're entitling this series, Why Follow Jesus? Uh, this morning, the text that we just heard read shows Jesus responding to one of the most common experiences that people have with him. No matter where you're coming from, maybe You've known Jesus um, all your life. Maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe you're new to Jesus. This experience here in this text is something that everyone has, regardless of how long uh, they've known about Jesus. And for our time and in our culture, 
I would argue it's something that we should expect everyone to deal with who considers following Jesus or who is seeking to follow him. I'm talking about doubt. Doubt. What is doubt? Doubt is, it could be defined in many different ways. It's kind of like this space where you feel like you're somewhere in between belief and unbelief. Kind of that middle ground. That you have a nagging sense that lacks assurance or certainty about something or about some belief. In our time, a doubt is really in the air we breathe. There are many ways to describe, well, what kind of time do we live in? We could call it a post-Christian time. There used to be a time when uh, Christian ideas formed the foundation and the basis of our culture and our thinking. That's no longer the case. It's a post-Christian time. It's a secular time. And it's a pluralist time when people hold all kinds of beliefs and perspectives. What this means is everyone, I think, deals with doubt at some level. And this is what thinkers and philosophers recognize. For example, um, secular and skeptical people, they doubt. In a New York Times article, a philosopher named William Irwin, who's an agnostic, he wrote this, any honest atheist must admit that he has doubts, that occasionally he thinks he might be wrong, that a God might exist after all. If not the God of the Judeo-Christian tradition, then a God of some kind. But it also applies to people of faith as well. Charles Taylor is a philosopher. He wrote a massive book called A Secular Age. Um, In that book, uh, Taylor being a believer himself says, those who believe in our time cannot help looking over their shoulder from time to time, living our faith also in a condition of doubt and uncertainty. Everyone deals with doubt. Now here in our text, if you look at it again, the text that we just heard read is somebody dealing with with doubt. One of the greatest figures in all the Bible, Jesus says he is the goat, greatest of all time, the greatest person of all time up until him. This is the last person we might expect to doubt. This is a person who devoted his whole life to prepare the way for the Messiah to come. And he was dealing with doubt. It's John. John the Baptist. Now, I think it's important to see that Matthew, the gospel writer, he didn't take this part out. He didn't edit this part out of the story. He wanted everyone to see this. Because with Jesus, doubt should be expected. And in fact, what I hope to share this morning and I hope to show you this morning is that doubt actually can be welcomed as a way to a deeper, a tested, and a more mature faith. In Jesus. So if you're following along and taking notes, uh, page five, you can use this also as a fan. It might get a little hot in here. As uh, our other pastor Eric mentioned, half of the AC isn't working this morning. But as you see here, we're going to talk about why we doubt. What are the sources of doubt? How do we deal with doubt? What do we do with it when it comes? And lastly, what does God do with our doubt as shown here in how Jesus responds? So first, why do we doubt? What are the sources? Where does it come from? 
Well, doubt can come from many places. There can be many reasons why we doubt. And I think uh, this story gives us two of the main sources of our doubt. But before I share these, first, we need to talk about who this John is who is in prison um, to understand the source of his doubt first and where it all came from. Some of you maybe know a little bit about who this is, this John. This is John the Baptist. He is a major figure in all four Gospels. He's actually related to Jesus. Luke tells us he is one of his cousins. John's ministry started before Jesus, and his one focus was to prepare people for the coming Messiah. John, if you know a little bit about him, was radical. People thought he was kind of crazy. His clothing, he wore uh, camel hair and a leather belt. He ate locusts and wild honey. So this was a radical figure. He went out into the wilderness, and for some reason, people were drawn and said, I want to know what's going on with this guy. What is he all about, and what is he saying? Earlier on in Matthew, in chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, we get a summary of his message. What was he saying? What was his understanding of the person who was coming that he was preparing the way for? John's message we, we learned, was all about this coming one. He said, the one coming after me, here's what he's coming to do. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel or fork is in his hands. He's going to clear out the threshing floor. He's going to gather all the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with fire. So John had a very intense message. He said, the one coming after me, he's coming to bring judgment to bring a great separation in the world. He's coming with immediate judgment and fire. He said that the axe is laid at the foot of the trees. Can you get the picture, axe at the foot of the trees? He says, the axe is there, everyone. The one coming after me is going to pick up the axe. And any tree that is not bearing fruit, he's going to chop it down. So now, fast forward to where... We are in this text, chapter 11. John is in prison. The full background story of why he's in prison is actually told later in Matthew in chapter 14. John had called out the king at the time, King Herod, for marrying his brother's wife. He said, that's wrong. Judgment is coming. So Herod, the king, put him in prison and later beheaded him. Look at verse 2. All that in the background in prison When John heard about what the Christ, it says, the Messiah, the supposed Messiah was doing, and we've been looking at that the past few months, chapters 8 and 9, he's been showing compassion. He's been reaching out to the outsiders. He's been eating with sinners. John heard about all this. He said, where's the fire? Jesus, when are you going to pick up the axe? And so he sent this message through his disciples in verse 3. Are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? So John is doubting. He's very seriously doubting. Now, in studying this passage this week, I came to realize that commentators throughout history have been very uncomfortable with somebody like John actually struggling with real doubt. So many argue that what's happening here is John sent his friends to help them with their doubt. Like, I have friends who struggle with the issue of doubt. Jesus, can you help them out? Now, I think that kind of interpretive gymnastics is unnecessary. It's straightforward here, isn't it? 
John, John the Baptist, a prophet, was struggling and dealing with doubt. I think this can be a great comfort to us that every person, no matter how great they are spiritually, no matter how bold or strong in their faith, no matter how many good things they have done, can experience seasons of doubt. Why did John have doubts, though? Where did they come from? What was the source? And what can we learn about the source of where our doubts come from? I think there are two, two sources of doubts mainly here in the text. It was his expectations and his unexpected suffering. Look at verse 3. He says, are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? He's saying to Jesus, this is not what I expected. Jesus, you are not what I expected God's Messiah to be or to do. And this plan that you're carrying out is not the plan that I expected. Now, how does Jesus respond to that? Verses 4 through 6. He's actually quoting from the prophet Isaiah, a prophet both he and John knew well. Verses 4 through 6, he basically says, I am the coming one, prophesied. But John, I am more, I am different, and I am greater than what you expected. This is the plan, John, but it is actually greater and different and better than what you expected. I read this story this week um, about the great theologian, St. Augustine. Some of you know about him. He's considered one of the greatest, if not the greatest theologian in the history of the church. He told this story. He said he saw a child on a beach one day as he was walking, and he saw the child um, making a hole there in the sand. We were just at the beach yesterday. Our kids love to dig in the sand. So the child was digging this little hole, and he was going to the ocean with a little bucket and pouring the water into that little hole. And he kept going back and forth and back and forth. And so Augustine said, what are you doing? And the child said, I'm going to put the ocean into this hole. And the story goes, Augustine said, ah, very cute. Uh, But for some reason, he felt the need to correct this child. He said, you can't put the ocean into that little hole. So he he was mean, I guess, in that moment. He ruined the child's fun. But then it says the child, he says, shot back at him and said, but you think you can put the very essence of God into your books, Augustine. Take that. (laughs) You think you can put the vast mystery of God into one of your books. The point is, if God is who He is, We should expect Him to defy our expectations. Here's the principle. Unless God is exactly the person who we think He is, who we expect Him to be, and acts the way that we think He should, we will have doubt. Even John had to learn this. Here's the flip side. If God is exactly who we think He is all the time, if God always operates in the way that we expect Him to, and does everything the way that we want Him to be and is the way we want Him to be, friends, then we should have serious doubt. We should wonder whether the God that we have is a God of our imagination and not the real God of the Bible. John says, should I look for a Messiah that meets my expectations? And Jesus says, no. No, John. 
You should look for the Messiah that both meets and exceeds and blows all of your expectations out of the water. Jesus says, John, I am and I am not what you expect. I am different and always will be. But if I am who I really say I am, shouldn't you expect it to be this way? That's more the rational side of our doubt, an intellectual source of our doubt, when God defies our expectations. But there's another side to it. I think we should read this on a more personal level as well. John was suffering in prison. He was in prison. It wasn't where he expected to be. It wasn't what he expected God or the Messiah to do. He said, Jesus, I am your forerunner. I'm your cousin too, by the way. You're healing lepers. You're calming storms. You're raising the dead. And you're leaving me here in prison. And you're letting this wicked king who imprisoned me off the hook. Why? Well, unexpected suffering, and most of our suffering is unexpected, is the source of much of our doubts. This is more of an existential, personal source of our doubts. Something hard and unexpected happens in our lives, and it causes us to ask, Jesus, are you the one? Or should I look somewhere else to get relief and help and a way out of this suffering? Jesus' response here, it's hard. It's a little bit enigmatic. We would want something more clear from him, but he says, verses 4 through 6, I have come to end suffering. See, the blind can see, the deaf can hear, the lame can walk, even the dead are raised. But he says, yet also expect suffering. Can you look at verse 12? This is also one of the hard sayings in this text. In the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence and the violent have been seizing it by force. It's a difficult saying, but I think what Jesus is saying to us is, yes, my kingdom brings the end of suffering, yet my kingdom will come through suffering. This is what we call the already and not yet. Suffering and sighing and pain has begun to end with the coming of Jesus and his kingdom. But it's not yet completely eradicated. And so in this life, we still suffer. Jesus and the rest of the New Testament is clear about it. Expect suffering and expect Jesus to be with you in it and for him to use it. And one day for him to end it. Those are the two main sources of doubt. The expectations we have that John had and the unexpected suffering he dealt with. Well, how do, we, how do we deal with doubt when it comes? This text has a lot to offer us on that question. First, what did John do? It's simple. He just asked. He asked about it. Don't hide or try to repress the doubts you have out of shame. Express it and ask. What if John the Baptist never sent his disciples to Jesus? We don't know what would happen. But John could have said, I'm John the Baptist. I should not be dealing with doubt. I know the Bible really, really well. I should be able to figure this out by myself. Can you imagine John in his prison cell just saying, I'm going to figure this out in the darkness and in the struggle of my own prison? That would have only driven him deeper into doubt. Instead, he says, you need to ask Jesus this question for me. And he sends for help. He told his disciples, he told Jesus. And the application for us, how do we deal with doubt? Friends, first, this text says, ask. 
Ask Jesus. Are you really who you say you are? That prayer is okay. That prayer is allowed, and that prayer is welcomed by Jesus. At the same time, ask others. John said, I'm struggling with this to his disciples, so help me find the answers. And I want you to know, all of you, people who have been here for a long time, my Trinity family and those who are new, who are visiting, Trinity is committed to being a safe church for you to express your doubts, to ask your questions, and even to bring your skepticism. We believe God is big enough. We do believe the gospel is true. And so we welcome conversations about your doubt. Don't doubt alone. Ask. Then you ask. Then Jesus says, be willing when it comes to doubt, to doubt your doubts. What do I mean? Look at verse 6. Jesus didn't uh, directly answer John. He could have made it way more straightforward. Yes, John, I am. I am the one. Instead of doing that, Jesus does what he does throughout this entire passage. He gets underneath the doubts to help John. And then you'll see he moves to the crowd to see what's underneath their doubts. He's showing them how to doubt their doubts. Now, when it comes to doubt, what we need to realize is this. It is not, as is commonly thought, faith versus doubt or unbelievers versus skeptics. That's not true. Everyone has doubt of some sort because everyone has faith of some sort in something. It's our faith in something that leads us to doubt other things. You see that you can't have doubt without faith in something. Think about it like this. Um, I was going to bring some, some bricks to do this, but I couldn't find different color bricks. But imagine yellow bricks and blue bricks. Yellow bricks are doubt. Blue bricks are belief. The way that doubt works is the yellow brick of our doubt is always on top of a blue brick, our beliefs. All doubt bricks rest on belief bricks. Without belief in something, doubt is impossible. Even if you say, I doubt everything, well, then you have a belief brick that nothing can be known for certain. So that leads you to doubt everything else. The, the, the question Jesus wants us to answer is, what is the belief brick under your particular doubt? What's holding it up? And if you take that blue brick out, how does it hold up when you expose it to doubt and scrutiny? Let me give some examples. We have doubts maybe about suffering, like John did. And the belief brick is like this. If there is a God, he wouldn't allow this suffering, or he wouldn't allow any suffering. Jesus says, well, take that blue brick out and ask questions. Doubt that belief. Why do I believe that's true? Can I prove that? No, we can't prove that, but that's a belief. Or doubts about Jesus. If Jesus is who he says he is, he wouldn't do this, or he wouldn't have this plan. We have doubts about Jesus. Underneath it is this is how Jesus should be. Take the blue brick out and ask questions and doubt and be willing to expose that to scrutiny as well. The point is this, to recognize that all doubt rests on something, and that something is faith. And that faith is not something that we can prove. So to be fair, Jesus says, apply the same scrutiny to the beliefs that we don't doubt as we do 
to those that we do doubt. If that was just too philosophical, let me just point to how Jesus does that here. Look at verse 6. First he talks to John. So he quotes part of the Bible. John probably had this memorized, and he knew it really well. Isaiah 35 is what Jesus is quoting, also along with Isaiah 61 and probably Isaiah 8 altogether. He wants to help John see what his doubt was based on. It was this. It was his belief, John's belief, that when the Messiah would come, he would come with immediate fire for the unfaithful and blessing for the faithful and set up a political kingdom through power. Now, Jesus didn't resolve everything for John, but he said, John, maybe this belief needs to be doubted. Look at the blessing I'm bringing. Look at the signs of the Messiah I'm doing from Isaiah. Look at the good news I am proclaiming. Maybe you should doubt that belief you have, the belief in immediate fire and judgment now. So he didn't come out and say it, but Jesus caused him to doubt his doubt. Now look at verses 7 uh, through 15. Jesus, the, the disciples go, okay, we'll bring the message uh, to John. And now Jesus addresses the crowd. The crowd's just watching. Why does he address them? It's because of their doubts in him. They were all on the fringes doubting Jesus. And he says to them, well, why did you go out to see John? What do you believe about John? That he's just another guy? It says, in verse 7, is he just a reed swaying in the wind? Just something inconsequential in the wilderness? Do you think he's um, somebody who is after political power? Is he a voice of those in power with his soft clothes? He's saying, what do you believe about John? If you believe he was a prophet, I agree. He was the greatest of all prophets. He was preparing for what you see here for me. If you believe in him, then you must believe in me. If you don't believe he was a prophet, then why'd you go out to see him anyway? Jesus is causing everybody to question their doubts and saying, be consistent with what you believe. Ask. Doubt your doubts. And then thirdly, how do we deal with doubts? Be willing then to own our faith. Be willing to own the blue bricks that we have. Jesus says, here's what you do with your doubt. You doubt it, and you find the faith that's underneath, and then be willing, be courageous enough to own that faith. This is actually how doubt can lead to stronger faith. John, he says, based on what you hear and see, and your doubt, to doubt your doubts, verse 6, he says, what do you believe then about me? Blessed are all those who are not offended by me. People, he says, do you own your faith in John or not? Be consistent. Be willing to own it because all of us live by faith in something. So here's the point I'm trying to make, friends. Doubt is not off the hook as if it's in some neutral zone. Say it's a safe place. If I just doubt, then I'm safe. That's not being honest. It's avoiding difficult questions. If we ask, if we doubt our doubts, then we need to be willing to own our beliefs and the reason we have for these beliefs. So Jesus is all for getting doubt out in the open. I heard it described this way. When we ask, when we doubt our doubts, and we're willing to own our faith, my Christian friends, we can see how doubt can be good for us. Like the human body always has some measure of fighting bacteria and virus and all the horrible things that are out there. We're always fighting it. 
But that makes us healthy, healthier in our bodies. It strengthens our immune system. Such is the same way that doubt can work in our spiritual immune system. We fight the doubt. We realize there are things underneath that we've assumed all along about God, about Jesus, about how He's supposed to work. There are things that we've assumed and expected to, the Bible to be that it, in fact, is not. And so we start to shed and peel off our false expectations and notions of God. And what are we left with? A stronger, more refined faith. So when we deal with our doubts that way, that can lead us to a deeper and firmer faith. Sources of doubt, dealing with doubt, and lastly, what does God do with our doubt? Well, first... I've made this point already, but I want to make it again because it's very, very important. He does not condemn it. Jesus does not condemn it. He doesn't say, John, what? You were there. Do you remember my baptism? The dove came down, the voice from heaven. Why are you doubting now? If you send these disciples of yours to me, then you're going to have them doubt. What are you doing? No, he doesn't do any of that. He doesn't condemn it. Jude 22, which we read and our prayer of confession says, have mercy on those who waver. Could be translated, have mercy on those who doubt. God commands mercy on those who doubt because He is merciful to the doubting. He knows in our sin, in our frailty, we will doubt. He doesn't condemn it, but He does challenge it. He challenges doubt. Look at verses 16 through 18 here at the end of the the text. Jesus says, what am I going to compare this generation to? It's like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to the other children. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't mourn. John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What's Jesus doing here? I think he's challenging everybody's doubts. There is a kind of doubt that we can have that is eager to receive a response and answers from God. We want that doubt to be resolved. We hope it results in a stronger faith. We're uneasy with it. But there is also another kind of doubt that's not interested in answers, that doesn't want to be resolved, but just wants to avoid the question of God and to avoid obedience to what God would ask of us. Jesus says here, what kind of doubt is yours? The people are saying, I'm not with John. He's too judgmental. He's too extreme in his teaching on judgment. He's too religious. I'm not with Jesus. He's too gracious. He's too extreme in his welcome of sinners and outsiders. He's not religious enough. Here's the thing. Our doubt can reveal to us what part of Jesus that we are avoiding. Our doubt can reveal to us exactly what part of Jesus we are avoiding and using our doubt to avoid. Jesus says, you don't want to mourn and you don't want to dance. 
Some reject the radical call of repentance, repentance for sinners. And some reject the radical welcome of grace for sinners. Jesus says, I have come to bring something no one expected. I've come to bring both. No one expected that. Verse 6, he says, blessed is the one who is not offended at me. I think Jesus is saying, I know everyone will be offended at me. But blessed is the one who perseveres, who doesn't avoid it, but comes through it to find a tested faith in who I really am. We could say there are two types of people when it comes to doubt. Some deny doubt. They fear it. They never admit it. These kind of people can't tolerate doubt in other people either. These are people, and maybe it's, you can identify with this, I can, who think they're always right. They have all the answers. Everyone else deserves judgment. We call these religious people. By denying their doubt, they're avoiding the radical grace of Jesus. What's a sign that you might be one of these people? You never mourn and you never dance. Repentance is only for others. You never mourn. Grace, I don't need it. Doesn't make you dance. Those are the religious people. There is another type of person. This type of person holds on to doubt because doubt, it's just a safer place to be. I don't want to be a judgmental person. I don't want to be one of those people who's always blaming and criticizing other people. I don't want to be self-righteous. But in holding on to doubt, and this may be you, sometimes it is me, we're also avoiding accountability, judgment, and obedience. And so we use doubt to avoid judgment. What is a sign that this might be your kind of doubt? You never mourn, and you never dance. You never mourn because what do you have to repent of? You never dance because grace is assumed. Of course, grace is for everyone. Jesus says, I have come to bring something that no one expected. Mourning and dancing together. So how, how do we get a faith that's unmixed with doubt? How do we acknowledge our doubt and yet find a stronger faith on the other side of doubt? I think Jesus is being a little enigmatic here, but he tells us, and it's very straightforward. He says to John the Baptist, John, here's what you need to do. Just hear and see. Just hear and see. Just look. At me, there comes a point when we have to get our eyes off of our doubt and look to Jesus. Here is one who upholds the full force of God's holiness and glory and his justice, and who unleashes the full force of his grace, his compassion, and his mercy on the cross. Who else causes us to mourn 
over the ways that our lives are broken, the ways that we have failed to love our contribution to the injustices in the world. Jesus does that. But who else causes us to dance over the fact that despite our failure and sin and brokenness, God loves us so much that His Son would stand in our place. The immediate fire and retribution and vengeance that John expected, Jesus said, I haven't taken that away. John, I have not edited that out of Isaiah and the rest of the Bible. I have taken it on myself. I will take the judgment. I will take the fire. I will take the axe so that all who look on me with faith can have grace, healing, love, restoration with the Father. Who else can do that? For me, when I come to places in my life where doubt just starts to creep in, and I don't know what to do with it, it's, it's there, and I'm like, well, what, what do I do with this? I try to remember this. Look away from the doubt and look to Jesus. There was a time in Jesus' ministry when he was saying all kinds of hard things, and people were starting to turn away from him and reject him. He turned to his disciples, and he said, are you guys going away too? And they said, this is hard, Jesus, but where else will we go? We've seen and heard too much. You have the words of eternal life. Let me close with this. Uh, Jesus, he welcomes um, and does not condemn us when we come in our doubts. He wants to deal with that and help us through those things. But Jesus also said something about faith and doubt. He said, uh, a faith that is unmixed with doubt, as much as that is possible, is the most powerful force in the entire world. Jesus said, if you have faith without doubt, you can tell that mountain to move, and it will move. There's a story of Peter, his disciple, walking on the water. And After Peter fell, he looked at the storm. He stopped looking to Jesus. He started to fall, and Jesus said, you have little faith. Why are you doubting? A faith without doubt can move mountains, can walk on water. And sometimes we get the wrong idea when we read those stories. It's not because of the power of our faith, but the power of the one in whom our faith is in. If I were to say... You want to go to Hawaii. Well, you can have absolute faith in this airplane there at LAX to take you from here to Hawaii. It can actually take you from this place all the way across the ocean to Hawaii. Have absolute faith. Don't doubt. It'll do it. Or say, well, what if I have absolute faith in the power of this paper airplane that I made to bring me to Hawaii? It doesn't matter how much faith you have, and how little doubt you have in that airplane. It won't get you one centimeter closer to Hawaii. What Jesus is saying is, bring, my, bring your doubt to me. I am the airplane that can get you there. So you can trust me absolutely if you knew me. If you knew me without any doubt, you could trust me 
Absolutely. That kind of faith can face anything. That kind of faith will do anything Jesus asks it to do, to give up anything and to follow him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for what this story shows us about what you do when we do have doubt. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your loving welcome of us when we come wavering, struggling, and doubting. I pray this morning that you would take us wherever we stand in our faith, that you would reveal to us things that need to be refined, questions that need to be pursued, ways that we need to seek help. Jesus, in order that we might look more clearly to you and know you as you are, not who we expect you or demand you to be. Lord, I pray that you would use this morning to drive away doubt, to bring mourning where it needs to happen in our lives, and to bring the joy of the dance of the gospel. We pray that in your powerful name. Amen.